adaptation is recognizing that even if we're enormously successful at mitigation, we're still going to end up in a world for the next 50 to 100 years where the climate has changed and we have to deal with things like sea level rise and extreme weather and greater wildfires, etc. In both of these categories, data is hugely important. Welcome to the Space Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, founder and managing partner at Space Capital, a seed stage venture capital firm investing in the space economy. We're actively investing out of our third fund with 100 million under management. You can find us on social media at Space Capital. In this podcast, we explore what's happening at the cutting edge of the entrepreneurial space age and speak to the founders and innovators at the forefront. This is the Space Capital Podcast, and today we are speaking with Johnny Dyer, co-founder and CEO of Muon Space, a company developing the world's most capable Earth-sensing satellite platform to power data-driven decisions in the era of climate change. We invested in Muon's seed round last year and again in their Series A, really based on the quality and the experience of the team, and we're incredibly excited about what they're building in addition to leading Muon, Johnny's also an operating partner at Space Capital. He's a former technical advisor at MethaneSat, former senior director of engineering at Level 5 Autonomy at Lyft, principal engineer at Google, chief engineer at Skybox Imaging, and has bachelor's and master's degrees from Stanford in mechanical engineering. So he is uniquely qualified to help us understand the opportunity in climate solutions and mission as a service. Johnny, it's great to have you on. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's good to be here, Chad. First of all, I just want to say congrats on closing your Series A, especially in this market. I'm sure you must be very busy. So just want to say, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, you bet. No, it's been a busy time, but we're, uh, I think getting through that has given a little bit of breathing room. So <laughs> great. Yeah. Timing's good. Absolutely. So you have a very interesting and very applicable background, and you've worked at startups, growth stage companies, and established companies. To kick things off, would love to hear the origin story. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? What has led you to want to start a new company focused on mission as a service, and why now? Sure. Yeah. I guess going back a long time, I mean, I've kind of always been a space geek from when I was a kid. And growing up, built rockets in my backyard and blew stuff up and scared my mother to death doing it, <laughs> things like that. So I've always been kind of super into the aerospace, space, rocket world. And then a lot of my career has kind of circled around that. Had a really formative set of experiences. I feel very privileged to have gone through the Skybox experience. I think that was a really unique team and unique opportunity that that ride was fantastic. And I think probably something that would be very difficult to replicate anywhere else in any other time. So that was that was amazing. And after Skybox, did a few other things, got interested in learning about what was happening in sort of the robotics and AI world and, and spent some time, as you mentioned, doing autonomous vehicles and, and learned a lot from that as well. I mean, in the background had been continuing to kind of keep my feet in aerospace and satellites through the the methane sat project, which you had mentioned, and, and have been an advisor on that ever since it started four or five years ago. And in that kind of in the course of going through my experiment with autonomous vehicles and, and really kind of deciding that that long term, I wanted to get back into aerospace. And then that coupled with the work I was doing in methane sat and some of the folks I met there that ended up becoming co-founders with me at Neon Space really started aligning on this idea that 
there was a huge opportunity or really gap to fill in remote sensing still as we think about the problems the world is going to confront in a changing climate. And I think that our perspective, and this was catalyzed in a lot of ways from the work we saw at MethaneSat, is that good data about the earth and the way the climate system is changing and, and emissions and things like that is really an underappreciated need in the climate solutions world. I think we're starting to see more and more people recognize that just fairly recently, even in the last year or so. And that, you know, satellites are uniquely positioned to make truly global, high precision, repeatable, low latency measurements of a lot of key parameters about the earth that are important for making decisions in that context. And so we were kind of inspired by MethaneSat as a sort of an existence proof of a very climate-focused mission being done with a satellite in a very non-traditional way, not funded by NASA or ESA, and thought, man, we really need to figure out ways to make more of this happen, make more of this go that's going to be critical to the world's being able to live in this new normal. And also, we saw it as a huge opportunity from an economic perspective. So that was really kind of the catalyst that drove us to start the company about a year and a half ago. Sure. And then so you have described Muon in the past as what SpaceX has done for launch, Muon is doing for everything else. What did you mean by that? And what is it that you're actually building at Muon? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you think about what it takes to, and I guess I'll kind of clarify that a little bit, I think we want to do everything else for these type of remote sensing missions. I don't think we're trying to boil the ocean, solve every potential space mission that anybody can come up with. But We want to get to a point where there's a cadence of launching sensors into space that is low friction, low cost, and very quick for a whole variety of end users in the same way that I think SpaceX has really made that happen for launch. And if you think about what it takes to deploy high-quality sensors to space, launch is obviously a key component, and that has really been transformed over the last year, largely thanks to SpaceX. But it's really just the first step in terms of being able to get a sensor in space have it highly calibrated, producing high-quality data, getting that data back to users at low latency, managing it, et cetera. And so our goal is to build out essentially a platform that enables, um, you know, that touches all of the other points that are required to host sensors in space, manage them, and get data back at high-quality and low latency. And I think what we've seen, part of the reason for this is that if you look at the industry today, There's a lot of people interested in remote sensing in a lot of different flavors, but for the most part, everybody's kind of reinventing the wheel every time they want to put a new sensor type in space. And we think that that's just a sign of an immature industry capability and that where the world needs to move is very much in the same way that, like, for instance, internet technology has moved to the cloud and platformization. Mm -hmm. The same thing needs to happen for getting these sensors into space and getting data back so that much smaller teams can get things up quickly without having to have the same sort of deep expertise bench rocket scientists and deep, deep capital pockets to get to a proof of concept. So that's kind of the idea. Absolutely. And I definitely want to dig into that a little bit more in a minute. But I'm curious, you were at MethaneSat working with a lot of really smart people on a really hard problem and decided to take this idea and run with it. I'm curious, when did you realize the opportunity and what made you think that a commercial company was the right mechanism to to go this route? I think that we realized the opportunity when we started, again, thinking about, and when I say we, there, two of my co-founders were also involved in that project. I should just mention that quickly. Dan McLeese, who's the 
head of the science advisory group for Methane Sat, and Ruben Rohrschneider, who is the instrument chief engineer, are both co-founders with me. And I think Muon really started to click when we started thinking about the diversity and variety of additional measurements like the ones that Methane Sat is making that really need to follow. So Methane Sat's great, but it's one very particular measurement. They're trying to measure methane in the atmosphere. In brainstorming, you can come up with 30 additional measurements that are going to be super critical moving forward to being able to both mitigate and adapt to things like climate in the future. And so you really need the capability not just to do this kind of thing once, but to do it repeatedly, to do it agilely, you know, be able to deploy these things quickly and at low cost, and then really have a large, diverse set of sensors collecting diverse data, but all using kind of common reusable building blocks. And so I think that looking at the existence proof of methane sat and then thinking like, man, there needs to be so much more of this is really what kind of drove us to, okay, well, how do we make that happen? And it seemed like a commercial company really focused around deploying diverse sensors in space was the best way to catalyze that. And that's kind of what drove us to then start the company. Got it. And you have assembled a really incredible one-of-a-kind team that really started at the inception of the company. You mentioned your co-founders. I mean, these are incredible folks, former JPL chief scientist, and Ruben was obviously senior chief mission architect for you, was, um, has a storied career at Ball Aerospace. Is this a common theme throughout your career that kind of snowballed all the way back from Skybox Imaging? You were working there with my partner, Tom Ingersoll, as well as several other people on your team. And you've kind of been <laughs> assembling them for a long time now. You know, you've kind of been meeting them throughout your career and you've brought the best to bear at Muon, it seems like. The talent market's incredibly tight, particularly over the last couple of years yet you continue to attract some of the best and brightest from some of the world's leading companies. I'm just curious, what's your secret? How have you done that? I mean, I wish I had a, a perfect answer to that. I think partially luck. I mean, I'll be pretty humble in saying I think we've been very lucky in getting really awesome people excited. But I do think there's a couple of factors. I mean, I think the mission that we're focused on is extremely compelling to people right now. I think one of the strongest polls for folks that we're bringing into the company has been this desire to work on something impactful in the climate arena. And it's actually quite hard to do, to find things that you can look at and really say, oh yeah, I clearly understand how I can have an impact by working on this problem. And in climate, it's just such a big problem. And so I think that's been a really key aspect of it. The other part I think is, I feel very strongly, I like my motivation for most of what we do in terms of hiring people and building the team is, finding people that like when I go to the office every day, I just love working with those people. And I think that feeds on itself in a very tangible way that people can sense. In other words, as you add, you kind of build this momentum. And as you get really great people that are super smart and are in this mission for the right reasons, are looking to work with other really motivated, smart people, that feeds on itself in a really exponential way. And even when we have people come in an interview, they comment on this, just the the sort of energy, the, the sense of shared mission, the sense of sort of belief in what we're doing, but also intellectual challenge that we have on the team where it's not about people's right and wrong ideas, but everybody's really in this to try and come to the best solutions. And I think that that kind of culture starts to really feed on itself in a way that people can sense and, and really want to be part of. It's a really energizing environment to work in. And I think we had that very strongly at Skybox. It was something that I saw kind of grow organically there. And I guess ever since then, have been striving to continue finding ways to 
build those type environments with people that I really want to work with. So great people working on big, difficult, impactful problems. I mean, sounds, yeah, like, a, sounds like a pretty winning, winning formula. Yeah, you summarized it much better than I did. <laughs> well, so we, you have a number of open positions. We have a dozen or so of those open on space talent. Just curious for those who are listening who might be interested in joining the team, you know, what are your greatest needs as you move into this next phase of your business? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the build out we're doing on the team right now is really on kind of core technical teams. So you can think about like our biggest right now, like just our biggest challenge is electrical engineers. That's a, been a really hard role to hire. I think it's generally been a tight market for electrical engineers. I think we have some really compelling, interesting problems for folks that are electrical engineers to work on. We're actually doing some really interesting and I think pretty cutting edge work on RF remote sensing with software-defined radios, which is a, a really interesting space. There's a lot of just core avionics work going on. So yeah, definitely like just electrical engineers are a big hard point for us right now. Software engineers are always tough. And I think software engineer is a very general term. There's a lot of different flavors of that. We're hiring for folks that are working on core embedded stuff for spacecraft, but also things like data engineering, data science, a lot of the more kind of generalist back and front end stuff. So those are definitely the big ones. We also are hiring for some science positions. Another kind of key portion of our belief in the solution space here is that we're really trying to deeply couple the science with the engineering. And Dan has already done a great job of building out a small, fantastic science team. And there's some other roles around science that we're looking to hire. So those are probably the big ones. Okay, great. So we recently published the Great Climate Opportunity with Silicon Valley Bank. And in that report, we featured Muon. It really, the idea was to unpack the massive climate opportunity for impact and return of capital and the foundational role that space technology plays in enabling these climate markets. And one of the key points that we were trying to communicate is that satellite data enables us to understand and address some of the most pressing challenges of our time, like climate, and that this is a massive problem that is affecting basically every business, every major industry is going to need to understand with regards to their business assets, their operations, and supply chains going forward. What are the pain points in the market currently, and how is Muon helping to solve those, kind of the problem and solution set? Yeah, so I mean, I think that I like to kind of break this problem apart into two primary categories. One is, if you think about the climate problem in general, there's really three categories. There's mitigation, there's adaptation, and then there's control or geoengineering. I'm going to kind of leave the third one off for now because I think that's further out in the future and there's a lot of questions about whether that's a good idea or not. But certainly for mitigation and adaptation, data is critical to operate in both of those areas. So mitigation is how do we reduce the net carbon in the atmosphere and slow greenhouse gas accumulation, essentially, to slow warming. And adaptation is recognizing that even if we're enormously successful at mitigation, we're still going to end up in a world for the next 50 to 100 years where the climate has changed and we have to deal with things like sea level rise and extreme weather and greater wildfires, etc. In both of these categories, data is hugely important. On the mitigation side, more and more of the belief about how you solve for the mitigation problem requires markets to work. And there's now some fairly large compulsory carbon markets in Europe and California. There's very quickly growing voluntary carbon markets. And in both cases, a huge problem that's widely recognized is transparency. Markets can't work well without good data and information. And 
Today, there's very, very poor information in these markets. And I'll, I'll give a very specific example that we were discussing yesterday. One of the largest types of carbon credits getting traded in voluntary markets today are what are called natural carbon solutions. It's basically you're buying credits in private forest land that is that the owner of the forest land essentially agrees to manage it in certain ways, not cut down the trees, et cetera, that through sort of an accounting process, they can show will net net save carbon emissions or essentially sequester more carbon over something like a 30-year time frame. And there's a number of companies that are very actively developing products in this space and doing projects where they work with landowners to produce these credits. And there's companies starting to buy these credits, companies like Delta Airlines and other ones. But if you really start digging in around the edges, there's no transparency at all into how these credits are priced, how they're monitored. The data about actually understanding how much carbon is stored in the forests is extremely poor and typically highly tied to things like putting boots on the ground and cutting down sample trees to measure their carbon content, something that just inherently does not scale globally. And so an example of a way that better satellite data hopefully will be able to help is by providing a much better set of global data around forest biomass. That's a huge need. It's something that I think is achievable with some development in both technology and science, but we believe is going to happen. Another example is, I think, maybe on the adaptation side, is the wildfire issues that we're seeing now. And I think that wildfires, there's a lot of causes of the kind of trends and megafires that we're seeing now. Some of them go back to longstanding forest management practices that are 100 years old, but a non-trivial component is climate change. And regardless of whether it's purely driven by climate change or not, it's widely accepted that wildfires are a large and growing problem globally, and they're going to continue to be so. They also have a, an outsized environmental impact, both in terms of greenhouse gas stocks, but also in terms of things like essentially particulate pollution in the air that's very bad for human health. And so better management of our forests and dealing with these megafires in a more, I would say, proactive way rather than the kind of very reactive manner in which we're trying to manage wildfires now is clearly crucial for the future. It makes sense. I mean, we've had carbon markets for quite a while now, but they've been very limited, right? At the same time, we know that financial institutions are beginning to use their influence to drive change. We know that large asset managers like BlackRock, TPG, and others are setting aside large amounts of capital to offset and to participate in these carbon markets, yet the transparency seems to be a key issue. I mean, it's what's been preventing really serious money from coming in into these markets. So thinking about how you're solving for this. So you're bringing a remote sensing capability to this broad array of organizations and institutions who, like you said in the beginning, aren't satellite experts. They don't want to build out a bench of rocket and satellite experts to do this for them. And so that's where Mission as a Service comes in, right? Where you're kind of providing them a turnkey solution? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think a key nuance to that is we are very intent on A, building, again, I, I mentioned kind of this technology platform that allows us to deploy sensors very efficiently, but also making sure that we're working with the ultimate customers of the data deeply such that the right sensors are getting deployed. And I think that's something that's a nuance, but it's a little different than, a, than the way that a lot of the rest of the kind of new space remote sensing industry has approached these problems. I'll be very upfront that I think we were somewhat guilty of this at Skybox, even much more of a build it and they will come mentality towards deploying sensors in space. What we're doing is essentially 
engaging with customers in these markets very early, long before we even have the idea of an engineering solution for a sensor, and partnering with them to kind of deeply dive into the problem space, going back to some of the science team stuff that I was mentioning before, bringing our scientists in to look at the problem with them, understand it, and say, how can we solve this with a remote sensing system in a way that really gets to the bottom of the problem and provides the right type of data? And we think this is its more than just a platform to deploy the sensors. It's a platform to deploy the right sensors. And we see this, what we call formulation, mission formulation, which is the first step to our engagements with customers, is a really, really crucial and underappreciated component to sort of making that work. We're doing a lot of that with early customers right now. Yeah, and there's clearly money to be made here. I mean, we've seen several companies over the last few years that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in equity financing. But you seem to be uniquely positioned with regards to assembling some very smart people who understand the sensors and can build the sensors purpose-built for customer needs. That seems to be missing from a lot of the other sort of assembly shops that are putting together commercial off-the-shelf type components. Would you say that that's your key competitive advantage is that capability plus obviously the people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, again, we're trying to orient ourselves to make sure that we're solving the right problem for a customer. And really, I think that is, we believe will be our key differentiator, that we're not trying to sell a data set that we happen to collect and are hoping that somebody will buy, but we have really collected a data set that's absolutely crucial to the problem that our customers are trying to solve. And I think the fact that we bring the depth of experience on both the engineering and the the science of remote sensing to bear on that problem puts us in a really unique spot to be able to do that. And I I do want to emphasize, I think it's also important that that is coupled very tightly with the ability to, as you mentioned, develop the sensors and deploy them efficiently, because I think it's all well and good to know there's a need, but being able to actually get that need fulfilled and delivering data to a customer in a cost-effective and time-effective way, I think will really substantially open up an entire new customer base to this type of capability. Sure. So how are you thinking about the market for Muon? How big is it now? How big do you think it could get? I mean, we're, we're, you know, obviously it's always hard to (laughs) estimate exactly how big markets will be in the future. I think you can slice this a few different ways. I mean, if you look at the market today, just for getting sort of sensors in space, it's large. It's in the high single digit billions per year. And that obviously is spread over a whole bunch of different things, like including things like defense intelligence. But that's a very non-trivial market. It's A lot of it is government funding, as we've seen from some of the recent announcements around U.S. government acquisitions that are coming out. But we do expect that to grow tremendously. And we think that's going to continue to be a big part of the markets that we're tapping into longer term. I think we believe that the real huge opportunity is in these kind of climate-driven markets longer term. And those are largely non-existent today, um, at least for data. And I think that so it's, it's a little bit challenging to kind of estimate how big those are. But you can make some course assumptions just based on sort of the things like the assets at risk due to climate impacts, which is in the many trillions of dollars over the, ne- the coming decades. And if you start backing out from that and saying, if a data set can help reduce some of those risks or mitigate the impacts, and you even capture a very, very small portion of the dollars that would be flowing through things like infrastructure investments, insurance payouts, et cetera, the numbers can be very large and the certainly tens and probably hundreds of billions of dollars a year in terms of market size. So that's that's what we're really excited about. We see this enormous upside potential long-term in some of those types of markets. 
What would you say are your biggest challenges in working to expand this market and help those new expansion markets to emerge? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one is just time. It's going to take time for all of these things in carbon markets to evolve. A good example is if you think about insurance, the, the, the thing I like to say is you have to think about a world where the next 10 years don't look like the last 100. And if you think about insurance and reinsurance, their whole model for the most part is looking at the last 100 years as a, an indicator for what's coming in the future, sort of statistically. And so there's sort of mindset shifts that need to happen when, when that's no longer true. And that's just going to take time. I think time is a big component. I think the other component is sort of the interaction of policy, the regulatory environments, and commercial players. So as you mentioned, a lot of companies are really starting to invest a lot in ESG. This is largely voluntary, though. This is largely being driven by things like pressure from their customers and their employees. There are some regulatory changes coming. The SEC has now announced that they're going to start requiring publicly held companies to disclose things about their climate risk, both their things like their carbon footprint, but also the financial liabilities they have due to climate impacts. And so I think we're seeing that those pressures are coming. But again, that will take time to develop. It's not totally clear, especially country to country, how the regulatory and policy regimes will evolve and, and where those lines will get drawn. And so I think a lot of this is really kind of understanding how the interaction of the commercial market forces and things like government policy and regulation are going to interact and then kind of waiting for those things to play out over time. That's going to be a big part of it. Got it. So tell us a little bit about your product. What exactly are you, are you selling to customers? Yeah, so our product is, as you mentioned, we call it Mission as a Service. And it basically is a turnkey solution that allows us to work with a customer from a very early stage, we like to think of like a, an idea of a, on a cocktail napkin about how a new data set could impact their business, all the way through architecting a network of sensors that would actually deliver that data, and then working with them to deploy the sensors into our essentially space and ground platform, and operate it on an ongoing basis to deliver data back to their business. So you can kind of think about it as an end-to-end -end turnkey new data development product, where we work with them all the way from an early idea through having data streaming into a cloud bucket in their organization somewhere. Okay. Where do you see advances happening that can enable new data sources? And where are you seeing the biggest advances in cost savings? So I think on the new data sources, I think there's a couple of trends that are really interesting. So one is just as has been the trend for a long time, as things like electronics improve, you have higher performance, for instance, detectors. We're seeing a lot of improvement in things like infrared detectors, which are a very useful and important part of the electromagnetic spectrum to be monitoring a lot of climate variables in. Also, I think just the amount of data that can be managed and handled in large-scale constellation systems is sort of growing, I would say, in a near exponential way right now for a couple of reasons. One is the ability to directly get large quantities of data down from spacecraft into the ground stations on Earth is improving because of large deployments of commercial ground station services but also because radio technology is very rapidly improving and allowing for very high bandwidths. So just the amount of data that can be usefully collected and utilized is growing pretty quickly compared with, for instance, like more traditional NASA-type missions, which are often very bottlenecked by data. And that starts to point to doing sensing in entirely new ways. So for instance, rather than trying to architect sensors that are 
very narrowly focused on a particular part of the EM spectrum and collecting a very specific type of data, you can start to think about much more flexible broadband sensors, whether it's in the RF or even in the optical spectrum, that are just kind of vacuuming up photons at a lot of different frequencies, and then getting all of that data down and kind of sorting through it to build many, many different applications off a common data set. So we think that there's a number of companies doing things like hyperspectral imaging in the space right now that I think are enabled by larger data pipes, essentially, and compute pipes. We're not sure that Others are exactly getting that right yet. We think it's really interesting. And then there's also a bunch on the RF side that we are currently actively developing internally that we think is really unique from just a multi-data, multi-mission flexibility perspective. So I think those are on kind of the sensing side, things we're really excited about. On the cost side, the big, I mean, the elephant in the room is launch. Launch has literally gone down, I love telling the story, by a factor of 10 since we did Skybox. The same basic same launch capability that we were paying about $6 million for when we were launching SkySats is now available through rideshare brokers for about a tenth of that, about $500,000. So we've seen an order of magnitude reduction in sort of the cost of access to space over the last 10 years. If Starship comes online, we expect that trend to continue. And that really changes a lot of things about how you think about the whole life cycle of developing spacecraft and sensors. It's you can take much larger risks because the dollars at stake in getting some things wrong are much lower. You start to think about, do CubeSats really make any sense? Like we can launch fairly mm. large capable spacecraft today for the cost that it used to be to launch a CubeSat. And then that really opens a lot of doors to much better capabilities in terms of power and data and other and aperture and other things. So I think launch is a huge origin of driving a lot of cost trends But I think it then catalyzes you to have to think differently about how you do everything else, which we're starting to see the industry start move in some places there. But I think that our hope is to get way out ahead of the industry in certain ways by really looking to a future in which launch is dramatically cheaper and and really thinking about how you architect spacecraft fundamentally differently in that context. So interesting how everything that we do in orbit is a function of the launch infrastructure in place at the time. And things are moving so fast. The best thing you can do right now is surround yourself with really smart people and be able to adapt to this changing environment. So it sounds like you are set up for success in that regard. Unlike most startup companies, you started off with some significant customer contracts kind of out of the gate. Can you tell us about your traction and your progress with customers to date? Sure. Without being super specific, yeah, we've, we've had a couple of engagements we've been working on with customers over the last year and a half and very much in line with sort of the value proposition I was describing of having a really strong interest in kind of unique remote sensing data sets that don't exist today, but not necessarily having the capability or desire to do the reinvent the wheel all the way from the ground up sort of execution approach. And then I think the fact that we also had really tremendous, you know, the experience of the team has been compelling in working with those customers on not only building the, the missions, which we're just starting to get into early stages of now, but really helping them architect the systems and think through what the really key requirements for their products are and how you optimize a set of sensors to meet those requirements. And that value proposition, again, I think has been very strongly seen by the customers we've worked with. And just to give a couple of examples, we spent a fair amount of time last year working with a company called Tomorrow.io, which is a a weather forecasting company interested in deploying sensors for essentially feeding their weather forecasting products. And again, when we met up with them, they were in the very early stages of concepts for the types of data they would want. And 
I think, in working with them over the last year or so. The, the concept has sort of evolved pretty substantially in a very good way. And I think they're now positioned in a really interesting place to deploy a capability that I think is going to be really game-changing once they kind of start talking more about it publicly. And another example is we started working last year early with a team at Google, again, on this wildfire project that I was kind of alluding to earlier. That's now transitioned into a larger effort supported by a number of other folks. And again, I think this sort of value proposition of being able to really go back to first principles and look at what is the problem that needs to be solved and how do we do that in an elegant way with kind of a coordinated constellation of sensors has been very powerful in allowing a team at Google that's essentially a software team to have access to these kind of capabilities. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of great. a short, yeah, <laughs> short great. version. And I'm curious too, you know, what have you learned about Muon's ability to bring technical advances to the climate and scientist community as you've now engaged more fully with potential customers? So I think probably the single most interesting thing that's come up, and this is, and Dan, our chief scientist, is much better at talking about this than I am. But it's really the fact that when you start thinking about remote sensing from a constellation versus a single sensor, so having many sensors that are coordinated in space operating together and, and making coordinated measurements and getting low latency data, for a scientist, it fundamentally shifts the way they think about solving problems. And Dan, I think, has seen this for a long time and has believed it for a long time, even in his time at JPL. But you really move from a world where you think about how do I solve this problem with one exquisite instrument to how can I solve this problem with a large array of sensors that are maybe lower, slightly lower quality on an individual basis, but in nets, the data they're producing is actually much more useful to the science problem I'm addressing. And I think the most recent example of that that is very interesting is we have been, again, on this wildfire mission we're looking at, without saying too much, like a large deployment of sensors that would have very, very short temporal sampling cadence, something like sub-hourly, I'll just say, measurements of the entire globe. And the we have some science advisors that we've brought in to help with thinking through the climate impacts of this and other things. But several of them, we've really seen a light bulb turn on in their head around things like, wow, if you had this capability, even if it was a targeted at a fire problem, it would really completely transform the way we think about measuring and monitoring other things in the earth system, like ocean sea surface temperatures, for instance, or plant health and global forestry, that we've been thinking about this in a very different way. But when you start to see these large deployments of coordinated sensors, there's a mind shift that can be very powerful that you start to see with scientists. Got it. Okay, so um, final question, I think. Given the macro sort of capital markets environment, fundraising is obviously much tighter, but you've just closed around, you're well capitalized, and you're in a great position to advance while the, the competitive landscape is, is retrenching. Curious, you know, how are you thinking about that and what's next from you on? Yeah, it's a great question. We just had a big leadership meeting yesterday going over this. So I think that the way we're thinking about it is, A, looking forward, a lot of the startup world over, I think, the last decade has been built on the back of a lot of capital being available without necessarily having to have real concrete business proof points. And I don't mean that to sound pejorative, but I just think there's been a lot of optimism around long-term business opportunities. I think what we believe we're going to see is more focus on tangible business metrics in the investment community, at least in the near term. Yep. And so we're really focusing a lot on that. How do we build a business, not just a big vision? And I think the vision is important, but it has to be supported by a revenue engine. So that, that's a big thing that we're focusing a lot on right now. 
And I think also just very tactically, like we're making sure that we make the cash last that we've raised so that we can weather the storm that's coming. We don't know how big that storm is going to be. But I think in the same frame, so we're trying to be a little bit conservative, make sure that we don't get too far out ahead of our skis and end up in a place where it's going to be difficult to raise money. But I also think we're keeping our eyes very open for opportunities because I think a lot of times, especially in the position we're in, having, as you mentioned, just been recently capitalized and some other companies and organizations facing headwinds, we anticipate there will be some big opportunities that pop up and we want to be very ready to kind of spring on those opportunities when they arise. So it's kind of a combination, I would say, of conservatism, but also making sure that we're keeping our eyes open and looking for opportunities. Sounds good. Look, this is really important work that you're doing. We're very happy to support. Keep it up. I think we're going to let you get back to it. It's been great to have you on and, and great chatting with you. Thanks for coming on, Johnny. Thanks for tuning into the Space Capital Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you're interested in learning more about investing in the space economy, I invite you to visit our website, spacecapital.com, where you can get access to more industry-leading insights and learn how you can join the entrepreneurial space age.